Hello, and welcome back once more to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is Al McBride. Al is a communication negotiation trainer who specializes in helping leaders develop their communication skills so that they have a psychological and emotional advantage. The reality is that most of us don't really understand what negotiation is. We have a tendency to only see what we see in front of us and not use our imagination to see what else might be possible. There are significant ripple effects if you negotiate well or poorly. It can have an impact on the entire lifetime profitability of a relationship, on whether a customer stays or goes. Are you trying to take value out and extract, or are you putting value in? Both sides need to benefit from the negotiation, so eventually they both need to be happy. But how do we prevent negotiations from ending up where one side or other feels resentful and then tries to get even or get out? So these are all important questions that we're going to be discussing. And the key here is how do you create rapid rapport? How do you create value in every single touch, every deal, every contact? And under pressure, how do you draw on those resources so that you don't blow it by reverting back to your reptile brain? So. Al, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much, Marcus. Great to be here. I enjoyed our previous conversation, so I've been looking forward to this one. Excellent. So could you tell the audience a bit about your history so they've got a sense of where you come from? Yeah, so I've been, I hate to use the phrase serial entrepreneur, but I've started quite a number of companies in all sorts of different sectors since I was 21. An awful lot of them, of course, involve sales, involve having to build rapport, involve all of these ideas of being clearer and clearer on your differentiation of the value of the service that you bring and building on top of that into relationships. So I suppose an awful lot of my sales journey was really in art dealing of all things. I was an art consultant, art dealer, and that's very much where there's a huge amount of emotion rather than logic playing into, and never mind ego, playing into it in all directions from the other dealers, from galleries, from the artists themselves to the buyers, to the owners. Exactly. And I, and I was selling an awful lot of Irish art here in Ireland, but occasionally in the UK as well. And it's fascinating as to, uh, well, first of all, you might call it my, my internship at the gallery here in Ireland and fascinating uh, lessons, old school sales lessons from <laughs> from a character. You know, I, I, I suppose you have that phrase in the UK as well, you know, where there's yeah. wonderful eccentrics, which, of course, the art world is, is full of le- less and less, but still there. They're still there. So a huge amount of lessons in that as to what makes people buy, what makes people want something, desire something, and then how to maneuver through that, how to to lower those barriers so that you can smooth out that purchasing decision. Okay. This is something we talked about a little bit uh, between ourselves. Yeah, I'll pause that there. I feel well, there's a question we, coming there, Mark. we start defi- uh, by defining what is trust? What is trust? Trust is the... I suppose trust, as I say, trust isn't built in a day. But rapport, we've all met people where we just we just get along. We kind of feel like this person kind of, we're on the same, you hear these cliches, we're on the same wavelength. We're on the, I feel we're on the same page. I think this person gets fun. me, right? And that's simply because you feel understood. And that's sort of the, the, the rapport there is the foundation that trust is built upon. 
And trust being then that the, those that feeling being compounded by action. Somebody says they're going to do something and then they do it. You so say they're reliable. So there's a reliability through behavior, action, reaction, all the way through that, oh, this person said they're going to do that, then they do that. Oh, and then they surprise you with this extra little thing. Oh, yeah, that was very thoughtful. Oh, yeah. And all these different little interactions are all playing and building on that initial impression that we're on the same page, we understand each other to a greater or lesser degree. We can also compare it to when that's not present. What's it like? We've all sat in those meetings. What's it like when it's not present? Because that's very acute. Absolutely. And we, we mentioned this before, where you're standing there and you, you very much get the feeling that that other person sees you as a means to their end. Not wanting to facilitate your needs. And so that's one of the things that that's where the trust comes in, that the other side feels this person. Yeah, of course, they want to do well for themselves, but it's nearly that fiduciary responsibility to you that they they understand they're playing the long game. They understand that if they serve you in a genuine way, your actual need, yes, your wants, but they're able to read, bother to try and read between the lines of that need and serve both what you want and what you need respectfully that then that will win for them compoundedly over time. Trust seems to be made up of being credible, doing what you say you can, being reliable, doing it to the manner, the time, the tune, the budget that you said you would, putting your needs after their needs, but your needs do need to get met, and that you're there to serve and service is clearly different from servitude, which is what tends to happen, I think, when we negotiate poorly, because then we find ourselves in a corner and then our limbic brain gets caught up in it all. Uh, absolutely. And what you find is an awful lot of relationships, particularly you know, when you're talking to consultants, this seems to happen quite regularly, where they come in as the expert, as this trusted expert. But then when they're in and over time, then suddenly they're almost their credibility in that relationship. It goes like that, uh -huh. where they're almost the job's body by the end of it. And they go, how did this happen? I came in, I was the respected expert, and rightly so. And now suddenly I'm being treated like the $20 an hour intern or whatever. Yeah. How does that happen? And it's because they keep, as I said, the, the, that initial rapport wasn't built on. Those boundaries weren't built on. So there's not this adult to adult mutual respect. It's, it That respect is some, somewhat lost in that journey. So. When people feel that you are, as you said, are serving but not in servitude, that you're you're respectfully pushing back where pushback is required, that the other person goes, oh, you're not a lackey. Now, they might be saying that in their head, but that's the message. This yeah. person is overall for my benefit, but they're not a pusher. This then comes to another part of the negotiation process, which is mm. psychological, which is being present and being uh, uh, showing up with the confidence that you are their equal in business. They may be more successful, wealthier, Absolutely. Um, whatever, but you have to appear as their business equal or else it's just not going to work. And this is one of the exercises I get my clients to do. I, I kind of have two bundles and people kind of move between them, but they're usually in one or the other. I have the nice, nice but nervous right? And the naturals. The nice but nervous are they find negotiation deeply unpleasant. Uh, the naturals 
they enjoy it. It's the wrestle. It's the tussle. It's the game, right? And it's exactly this. I've found from many years of working with the naturals. Now, they, they have their own issues, which we'll get into in a minute, maybe down the line. But but this I've always noticed. They fundamentally see and believe in the value they're bringing to the table. They're not con men. They're not like, oh, you know, oh, get one over the thing I'm doing. Oh, you know, they're not secretly nervous and hiding it. They're not. They yeah. actually, as you say, believe that they are an equal, believe the value that they bring to the table. And it's one of those fundamental things you think people would do, but they often don't, which is, are they fully clear on the actual value of the service or product that they're trying to sell? <laughs> are they? Do they truly like believe in it? Because when you truly believe in it, you don't have to pretend. Because you're going, this stuff is awesome. Like those guys, they do that, that, that really well. And we're, we're, le- we're, and they might be in their head going, we're a bit weak in those three. But on these four points, we're badass. We, we smack the hell out of all of them. But yeah. they fundamentally believe in the value that they're bringing to that table. That's whether they, they're seen by maybe a third party in that, as I said, that, that weaker role, that David Goliath struggle, even the Davids there, that they know what they're bringing to the table. The danger we have is that the moment we express lack of confidence and we project that out, it gets reflected back in doubt in the buyer's mind. And the buyer's response to doubt or uncertainty is to default to the worst case scenario. And so by putting salespeople in front of buyers who lack confidence, you actually increase the perceived risk in the buyer's brain. Hugely. Hugely. And, and, you know, because part of what I do also is, you know, uh, public speaking, presentation skills, all that sort of stuff. But again, it's from the psychological side. And this is the problem with nerves. There was some research done on this, that when you have, you know, I think they use two actors or whatever doing the exact same spiel, right? But one obviously were sounding a bit nervous and the other wasn't. The credibility level was much lower in the other one because everybody's been nervous, right? We're not all perfect public speakers all the time. In some situations, you know, you just get a bit of nerves going. So we're all kind of, oh, you know, you feel for them a bit. But the the problem is, so there is a bit of empathy and compassion there. Everyone's not like, oh, you're pathetic. Why are you nervous in front of me? You know, that's not what people actually think generally. What does trigger in their heads, though, and this is completely to compound your point, is they go, are you nervous because of the situation and there's a lot at stake because this is a big deal and if you make it, you make a big bonus and it's a big contract? Or are you nervous because you think you're actually talking some degree of bullshit here that I need to be wary of? And that's where you introduce, just as you said, you're introducing the doubt in the prospect of the buyer's mind where they're going, is there something I need to be aware of here? This, again, is another really interesting observation because um, and I think it's going to worsen over the next couple of years as the economy tightens up, as we go into Mm. what looks like um, uh, an unraveling of this cycle. Um, As that happens, I think more and more people will be under greater stress and they will behave badly the opportunity to stand apart is just massive massive because to be to stand apart and be different as a seller in this in the market as it was wasn't difficult no now it's going to be a walk in the park but it requires the discipline 
And it requires you not to trigger your brain into those lower brain functions, which means that you better be focusing on building your medium-term pipeline so that in six months, they start turning into short-term pipeline because it's going to be fucking hard later on this year as we go into the election year as well. Think about the turmoil that's coming. Uh, absolutely. And as you said, people then start battening down the hatches and lowering potential contracts and all sorts of stuff like this and renewals get more tr get yeah. trickier. But bear that in mind. And you, you use the, the, the lizard brain analogy. and so, But that's, that's spot on in the sense that what are nerves? The difference between being like in what they call, you know, the fight or flight, which is essentially nerves, even if it's a one or two or three out of 10, rather than a I'm in a panic eight or nine out of 10 on a one to 10 scale of nervousness, anxiety, whatever when you call it, the difference between fight and flight and the challenge response. So the fight or flight is you're being hunted, essentially, right? You're running for your life or fighting for your life, literally life and death stuff. The challenge response is when you're hunting for your dinner, you're not in a relaxed state, right? You're not, <laughs> you know, ah, sitting on a cushion, right? But yeah. you're the one with the spear in the hand is the emotional equivalent. So it's the difference between saying, oh, God, I'm not sure I can handle this, right? Mm -hmm. in I can and I can't, you're on that borderline over the other unhelpful side, lizard brain, survival mode versus the opposite. Just the, that other side, which is, this is challenging, but I think I'm up for it. Bring it the fuck on, you know? And, and it's that difference where you're you're fully alert. It's like the difference between if, you, if you're a rugby fan, I know the Rugby World Cup's on at the moment. So if you're a fan of that, you can see the players in really tough games. They're just on that line. And occasionally it happens that then they they do something stupid and they're like, oh, why did I do that? Why? Because they just boiled over into the red zone and they lost that control. They lost from the challenge response into, and the control was gone. Yeah. And it's the same point is that it's the difference between fighting for your life versus running for your dinner. Okay. All right. So, so they, we're sorry. going on a slight tangent there, Marcus. I apologize. Well, it, it, it brings us very much back to negotiating and the imperative of practicing the moments that you can practice for. I always tell my clients, you know, ask them, you know, how many objections do you actually hear on a regular basis? And it's rarely more than between 12 and 30. It's always the same one. Of course. So all of those can be planned for, your answers can be practiced and be refined, and they can be tidied up for people with different behavioral styles and communication preferences and different job functions. And you can okay. practice and practice and practice all of those things. Almost no one has ever been asked an original question by a customer. They're always the same question. So you can prepare how you choose to respond to those. Almost no one has been asked for an original piece of information. After 30 meetings, you'll have had all of those questions and all of those objections. Absolutely. So you have no excuse for not preparing. Now, in negotiation, mm. what I see is people going in and winging it. There's a terrible what? normalcy of winging it. I don't know how uh, people prepare in all these sorts of ways for all these different meetings. But then, as you said, they go in and they wing the bloody thing. Like, and look, you have to be ready to adapt. Don't get me wrong. You can't sort of plot it out. It's not a piece of theater that like I say my line, you say <laughs> you say your line and off we go. Of course not. It's a dynamic thing. But there's still a huge amount that you can prepare. There's still that idea. And, and people 
as you said, the, there's the 30 or so questions, but of those, there's probably 20% that come up the most and that matter the most to the other side. What are they? And what is the need underneath them or to the point that you're that you're trying to address? What's that fear? And this is something you do so much with my clients is taking the time where they go, oh, they want this. Yeah, but why do they want that? And then you go in again, one of the, the starting points is, what are what your counterpart? What's their KPIs? What are they literally judged on? What are they literally judged on? Because someone will be judging them on their performance. Maybe it's for a bonus. Maybe it's for a promotion, whatever it is, if, if they're a buyer, right? What is at risk for them if they go with you and you drop the ball or make a balls of the whole thing? So three what questions. What is the, the, the pain points for them? That's what you need to alleviate. Absolutely. Three questions you should always have running at the front of your mind What's the motive? What's the cause? What's the intent? Yeah. How did they come to me? What was it that brought them to this moment? What caused them to ask that specific question in that specific way, this specific moment? And what is their intent behind asking it? Are they gathering information? Sure. Are they trying to trap me? Are they using it in the, the information they do gather in order to beat up their incumbent preferred supplier? Or are they simply trying to clarify something that we have left them in doubt about? Absolutely. I pick up on a few of those points, but the, for, the big one is intent. Yours and theirs. And, and we were touching on this earlier, is that you start with the B. Who are you being or do you need to be in this meeting? And start from that position. And we were talking about building rapport, building trust, that you know fiduciary responsibility. But that's how you prime that. When you turn up, because we both get asked, oh, what do, when they raise this objection, what's the right response? And yes, there are certain neat, concise responses to certain inquiries that you can research and have prepared. But it all starts from who you're being. Do they fundamentally not bloody trust you? And they're actually, as you said, are they trying to not so much catch you out per se, but actually expose the truth? Mm. Are they trying to find out if you're a bullshit or not because they've been burnt by the last set Absolutely. that said similar to your saying? Now, that's baggage that you're having to put up with in that room. It's not your fault, but it's their reality. So you're having to deal with that. You're having to navigate through that. Like, And this is why we're talking about intent. As the number one lesson in all relationship therapy, marriage therapy, it's the same with business relationships, internal business partnerships, client, buyer, you name it, ascribe positive intent. So even if they're giving you a hard time, even if they're questioning everything you're saying as true, and they're being a really kind of really quite rude, let's be honest, the ability to stand back in your own head and go, this doesn't make them a bad person. It's not necessarily they're attacking me. They're attacking what they think is me. They're attacking the lies of potentially or or the deception of previous people who who sounded just like me, right? That they're not attacking you. It's rarely actually about you, right? It's causing it. It's probably an echo from some past unpleasantness, right? Or this is how they were trained to do it. They tried it in a different way where they were pleasant and got burnt. And now they associate, oh, this is how you deal with someone trying to sell to you. You know, it doesn't matter. The point is that you're able to actively ascribe positive intent, even if they're being outrightly aggressive and rude to you. And that way you can stay in your better self. I'm trying to serve you here. And sooner or later they go, oh, I gave that guy a real hard time there. And 
still eloquent, still perfectly pleasant, even playful at times, answered all my questions. Okay, I'm starting to like this person. I think I can maybe work with this person. That's where you're trying to get to. That, oh, it's unlike the others who either buckle or can't answer or aren't ready or didn't bother to think of the obvious questions that I'm concerned about. That's the points of differentiation above and beyond just here's my presentation and what are the problems that you're trying to, that you're up against that we might have the solutions to. It starts with that, who am I being? And then understanding their needs. What are their needs? What are they afraid of? And what are they afraid that you, what's the risk that going with you entails and how can we lower that risk? So can you unpack what you mean by who am I being and what uh, and contrast what pos- a positive version of being versus a yeah, uh, versus sometimes because a lot of the language, unfortunately, as we were talking earlier, falls into cl- a little bit of cliche like, oh, you know, we're serving, not selling. And oh, yeah, yeah, serving, not selling. And it's absolutely correct. Like, I, I'm totally in agreement with that. But people start hearing it as a buzzword. And when the buzzword starts coming in, then the meaning drips away quite quickly, unfortunately. It's about, oh, yeah, serving, not selling. Yeah. What are you doing? Are you turning up going, oh, if I get this contract, if I get this contract, then I, I'm set. Or we get to, you know, me and the wife get to move to the, the new bigger house or we get a new car or whatever the whatever the incentive bonus is. If they get the feeling that they are a means to your end, and not a means in themselves, that you're not there to first of all facilitate the solution to whatever the hell problem. That's that's all they're paying. They're paying for you to solve a problem. And right? again, if we if we just think re- rationally, why mm. would somebody put their livelihood at risk with you? and be scrutinized, possibly lose their job, or uh, be passed over for promotion, miss a bonus. They are risking an awful lot. For you, it's a transaction. For them, it's their career. It's their livelihood. It's putting their kids through school. It's putting food on the table. It's going on holiday. It's taking care of their elderly relatives. And we have an obligation as sellers to think that big. We've got to think as the customer, not about them. Now, this then comes to the big question, which is we hear about win-win. And Mm. by and large, what mostly people end up doing with win-win is they compromise and give stuff away uh, and walk away with a bad deal. Win-win, in my definition, is both sides eventually agree and get their needs met. But it takes time. And It's hard. It means that you have to get to the end where neither side has to make any important compromises. Exactly. That is difficult. And you use the key word there, Marcus, which is compromise, because people always think too much in terms of zero sum. And there's there's always in sizable deals, there's always lots of elements that are zero sum. I'm not saying there isn't and everything is, you know, wonderful and tickety-boo. I'm not saying that. But this is the key psychological difference that to go in with 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 the, the what the, the the best negotiators do compared to the rest. Essentially, they're extremely clear in the destination and extraordinarily flexible in how to get there. And they're also very generous on sharing what the, exactly what their needs are and rooting out the underlying needs of the other side. That that's the absolute key. Now there's a whole other series of factors, but in its essence, that's what a lot of it is. But here's the other definition to get clear. 
Compromise is, let's split the difference. It's buying a trinket at an antiques fair. You say 20 quid, I say 10, we meet 14, 15, 16. That's fine in that situation because you don't need the time. Who cares about underlying reasons and needs? It's, it's a, buying a trinket, who cares? There's no need. When it's seven, when it's eight figures, it learn what are the needs going on here, right? It's not a trinket. They say move slowly to move fast. Like you want to get that groundwork in there, both for the relationship, but also the understanding of where they're actually coming from, how they see their problem, and then how they might well see your potential suggestion of a solution or a series of solutions, right? But it is this difference between compromise, which is essentially split the difference, versus collaboration. Collaboration starts with the question, how can both of us get as close to 100% of our needs met? That's the question. And really great negotiators go, how can we get more than 100% each? And that might be like, how is that possible? Because then you're adding, you're, you're doing even better than you thought you could. Because both of you are trying to solve both of your problems. So you have two, two minds, as I said, two sides of the table working to solve the problem, not just one. And this is moving from splitting the difference is, is that classic standard win-lose, zero-sum, seizing as much value as possible, 80s Gordon Gecko style stuff, right? Which has its place, okay? I'm not saying, again, teach the world to sing stuff and you can't actually, because yes, you, you have to fight your corner, sure. But it's also understanding the thing in the round that the more and more you can get up to that collaboration space, the more and more value you can add. Again, I tend to use the word collaboration um, as a lower rung to cooperation. Uh, okay. Collaboration is where they are they're doing heavy lifting together. The cooperation is where they're doing the heavy thinking together. It's um, a nice, uh, nice definition. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's interesting is that most sellers go into negotiations with a mentality of either play not to lose. Mm-hmm. or to try and squeeze them for everything that they've got and to make the transaction happen. The reality is buyers don't want to be sold. They don't want to be pressured or coerced. What they want is an outcome. They pay for and they rent an outcome. If we can bother to understand that, what is the job they are trying to get done? The negotiation starts on a much better footing because you start negotiating from the moment you open your mouth or they open their mouths. Why is it we are here? What is it we are trying to accomplish? Imagine you've got an ideal solution in place. What does that look like? What would be good about that? Okay, so how, how is that better from right now? Yeah, exactly. But the problem is that if you go in trying to peddle product and make a deal happen, the emphasis isn't where the customer's attention is. Marcus, even just, and I don't know all the different niches, some might be far more closer to what you're talking about than others. But a huge amount of people, just by doing that, by actually having a genuine interest, and, and again, how do I pretend, to, how do I come across as interested? Be interested. Be interested. You know, get fucking curious, damn it, yeah. you know. What's actually, how, what is the actual problem? Because like, unless they have a problem, they're not going to pay you to solve a problem. So there's a need there. Like, ask what it is. Get all of those details. And you're going to understand the culture of the other side. You're going to understand all the niche little micro politics going on in there. Because you get these situations where, you know, 
one what do you, you're negotiating with the other side and I had to, heard this you know where one guy it needs to be done by this date making an incredibly difficult timeline you're like that seems a bit arbitrary and they'd built up long this very long story short but they built up enough trust that the seller was able to say to one of the main guys on the other side look what what is this date? Can you really tell me? Because you're very sensible and all this other stuff. This seems kind of arbitrary. And he sort of goes, oh, the director had promised one of the board members that they'd have X in place by that time. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why don't we do this part? We can do this section, which is a show. To, would that be sufficient? Oh, yeah, that would be really helpful. Yeah. So they didn't need a whole project done. They just needed one wedge done to satisfy that promise so your man didn't lose face. With the with the head of the board, right? But it's those sort of silly, bizarre little face saving things, and people think face is only for you know out in Japan or something where they're very concerned about this sort of cultural stuff. It's not. It's everywhere, yeah. everywhere. People don't want to look foolish in front of ego their colleagues in competitor. their eyes. You know, pardon your, me. Your biggest competitor is ego. First of all, yours oh. and then empires, because ego thrives on drama and the moment you end up allowing your ego to get hooked and it normally happens because you are worrying about something that happened in the past or you're worrying about something that will happen in the future over which you have no certainty and the net result of that is that you become attached you become emotionally involved both in the outcome and also in the moment Net result of that is you start switching off the clever part of your brain, you start running out of the ability to speak, and then you do stupid things like, so, yeah, go ahead. like making concessions or running your mouth. Exactly. And and one of the, you know, there's a lot of research done on the most effective strategies used by buyers against sellers. Silence. Uh, well, so, well, uh, uh, well the, the most effective one in the 80-20, like the one that works for crazy amounts of money won over is one last thing. Yeah. Just this one last thing and then we can get it over the line and sign the thing and be done. That that last concession, the desperation, as you see, the ego to, oh, we're nearly there. Oh, go on, okay, we'll give you this last thing. Disaster. And we talked about this before, Marcus, where the amount of salespeople that are sent in, and it's both their fault and it's the people who send them in there who don't really know the margins. Now, I know this from a software perspective. It happens all the time. Software guys go in, they're, oh, we're nearly about to sign, and the, the buyers go, oh, just just throw in that then, just just chuck in that and we'll we'll call it a day and we'll sign and we'll all go for drinks and celebrate. Oh, okay. And then they've literally slashed the margin. They gave away that thing because they didn't know they're bloody. They didn't know what, how much that actually cost in our labor hours to create that piece of software. And they've just slashed the margin in nearly in half. And, and this is so critical. Knowing all what the time. hidden costs are. And oh. the hidden costs of sale are the second highest hidden costs in any business. Huge. The highest hidden cost is wrong hires. So let's have a quick chat about what makes a fantastic negotiator. What are the qualities that make a truly great negotiator? Well, there's a, there's a few different things. We, we touched on them. As I said, the key thing is that they're extremely clear on where they need to get to and extremely flexible on how to get there. And I don't just mean flexible on do I take path A or path B, that they allow the situation to unfold in the way that best suits 
the other side, number one. But when they see an opportunity to do something better. So it's the classic phrase of don't be so focused on what you want that you won't take something better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're able to do that all the time, both for themselves and for the other side. Oh, well, and this okay. is why what they'll else? often say things like, I'm going to drive you mad with questions. And let's say it in a playful way at the start. They'll say like, I'm going to have to apologize. And this I go, whoa, apologize? What do you mean? This is a strange way to start, but I have to apologize. I might drive you absolutely bonkers by asking you questions all around your needs. He said, but that's because I'm trying to really get to the root of what the problem is we're trying to solve together. And the other side, I go, oh, okay. So you're setting the expectations and then you're going into it, just like what you talked about, Marcus. You're going into on this fact-finding mission, facts, on this whole perception and expectation mission is what you're also discovering. Yeah. So that you're able to facilitate those needs at a whole other level than the other side even realize that you're able to do. And don't forget, what are they doing here? They're insulating the deal from gazumping, from third parties getting involved, all this sort of other stuff, because no other party are doing this. So th- this so, then raises another really important point, which is mm-hmm. you have to look to prove yourself wrong. You have to go looking for the sound of gunfire. Absolutely. This is where we really come unstuck. I mean, the amount of money I've seen people leave behind. Unbelievable. Lose. Um, because they didn't have a clue. This you touched on from another angle earlier, where you were talking about shutting down the ego. We have this need to be right. And when you have a need to be right, if there's a right, there's a wrong, by definition. You don't want to be wrong. You want to prove that you're right and all these sort of ego-based traps that can get you into a lot of trouble and and can constrict that potential for finding that extra solutions that add a hell of a lot more value and get you up to that far more collaborative and cooperative space. Uh, one of the things that I often talk about is, is this great book, uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie Jukes. Is this psychologist? So you probably know it, do you? And I've she, heard of it. And it's fabulous because she's a psychologist and she got very curious playing poker with how do professional serious poker players who make a living from poker, a very good living from poker, so they're excellent at it, how do they actually think about risk and decision-making? And they think of it in a very different way to most of us. They remove their ego. They're not trying to be right. They're trying to be accurate at all times. And they're trying to increase the accuracy. So the first question is, this is just like a tiny overview, one section, but it's a lovely question to ask. How sure are you? You say something, oh, it's this. This is the answer. And you go, okay. You can ask this of the other side, of yourself, of your own team in your preparation. How sure are you? Put a percentage on it. Ballpark. Won't hold you to it. Ballpark. Okay, so you say like, Manchester City are definitely going to win the Premier Soccer Premier League this year. And you go, oh, definitely. Interesting. And then you say, "Uh, how certain are you? Put a percentage on it. Yeah, 80%. Oh, okay. That that low. A lot of people would say 90%, right? But the point is this, and you go, okay, and if they're not, the other way to do it is is what they call bet to vet. So you can mix the two where you say, Manchester, somebody's a pub talk, you know, Manchester, Manchester City are definitely going to walk the Premier League. This They're going to win it by 10 or 12, 20 points even. Oh, would you bet £10,000 on it? Oh, what? Would you bet £10,000 of your own money right now? Not with me. Go down to the bookies. Not with me. I'm, I'm not, this isn't a wager between me and you. I'm clarifying your thinking. 
Oh, well, oh, well, I wouldn't know 10,000. Oh, and why not? I thought that was certain. Okay, so it's, you're not 100% certain. Interesting. So what percent are you? Oh, well, you know, 90, maybe 95%. Okay, interesting. So why the 5%? Say you're 95%. Why the 5%? That's really interesting. So suddenly, because you have skin in the game of your own 10,000 pounds, and don't forget, when we're doing large-scale contracts, there are six figures. And then what is it to you? If you're the business owner, it's it's a potentially some of these are like a new house. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like far more than 10,000 of your own money. But anyway, so ask that question. Put the skin in the game. How certain are you? Oh, okay. Suddenly it's not 100%. Say it's 95. Focus on the five. Why the 5%? What's in the 5%? Oh, well, again, to continue the Man City analogy, you know, if Haaland gets injured... Maybe they're weaker in midfield because, you know, they lost some key players in sales. Oh, and why else? And suddenly you're looking for other reasons, counterpoints to your original thinking, which dig you out of the confirmation bias trap. And this is what we're talking about. There's all of these, you know, psychological traps. But one of the biggest ones is the confirmation bias, that you seek to confirm that which you already believe. And this is this is one of the biggest human error thinking because you see it and you go oh what we see is all there is and then you go oh this means this does it maybe maybe not but this allows us to reset our thinking into trying to be accurate just like the poker player they don't need to be right they need to be accurate over time over multitude of thousands of hands thousands of games all right that's what they're seeking to do and that's what asking how much would you bet and what percentage sure of certainty do we have you can do this with your team for planning and you can do it in a few different ways. Imagine you as the team leader, as your leader of the gang, whatever, come in and instead of saying, I think this is the way to go. What do you think? <laughs> You're, you need an amazing relationship with your team for them to give you honest answers. Instead, you come in and you say something like, uh, one of my clients said this, they had to do it the project management way around, which is, I'm taking these assumptions to be correct. And on the basis of this, this is the strategy I'm proposing. Do you think those assumptions are correct or they're actually, they need to be readjusted? Or are there other factors I'm not seeing or not giving weight to? Total open discussion. Oh, what am I missing, basically? What am I missing? Correct my thinking. It's a license to play. It's a license to get those creative juices and and as I said, those counterpoints to that logic. What other reasons am I missing here? You're wanting to make your thinking more robust by by road testing the damn thing, right? And this can grow into, you know, what they call red team or, or a pre-mortem, which yeah. I'm a huge fan of. Again, this is talking about the preparation so that you're not hit by some of these curveballs. As you said, just the 30 questions and the 20% of those 30 questions which matter. Prepare for those. What I'll, else? The, the let me give a concrete example. I was working Please. with a systems integrator client they were being brought in to bid on a recabling project for an mm. office. It was coming in at 120. We planned it. We did the red teaming. He walked out with a $3 million order. There you go. Amazing. $3 million. So it's about 28 times the order size by planning and preparing and rehearsing. And just rehearsing to ask, every moment. without getting too specific to that deal, what was... Was there something that came to light that wasn't obvious before? What was the difference yeah, in that magnitude? A load of pain. It was a, a head office move 
I'm just trying to remember. So it was a head office move. They were moving from one place to another. It was after the first lockdown and between the first and the second. And they wanted to set up this new head office for, uh, it was for a TV station, actually. A, a right. TV and what we discovered was how much pain there was and what hadn't been talked about because with the office move came all the other things that come with it. So by helping to create a project plan and co-developing that with the customer, their fingerprints were all over it. And the net result was actually we shortened the sales cycle by about two months as well because they ended up getting exactly what they wanted and they had designed it the seller had just facilitated it, but it was through the red team meeting that we uncovered all of these things. And then we planned out the questions. We did a pre-call plan. We rehearsed every stage of the structure. We worked out what questions they were likely to ask, how he was going to respond and what questions he was then going to follow on with, uh, what the likely ripple effect was, if they were positive, neutral, and negative. It's a lot of work, but Compared to the amount of prospecting you would have to do, the amount of marketing you'd have to spend time and money on to get 28 deals in, it's worth the couple of hours. Oh, it's absolutely, absolutely. And again, you're you're more forewarned as forearmed, as the old phrase goes, and that's what you're doing to a whole other degree. I mean, just, you are, just you're priming your brain. Many of your listeners probably before. probably know pre-mortem when we say it. It's it's obviously that you're doing it. That's not a post-mortem. It's pre-mortem. But one of, one of the key factors is that everybody has a license to dig up reasons why this thing failed because it starts with future focus, where you say this has D Day, this has failed. Why has it failed? So that you have far more license to actually explore those counterfactuals. But and seemingly it creates more than about around about 30% more uh, options and more potentiality than if you say what might go wrong. Because people are still too defensive because they don't want to be because they don't want to come across as negative, you see. Well, what's what's interesting is if you have a white team and a red team. So the white team is made up of the uh, account lead and their second. So mm -hmm. you always have someone who approves whether or not something can go into forecast. So mm -hmm. another rep, someone else on the sales team has to verify that you can put that into forecast because you've done the qualifications. So you get them to work together. The white team has to defend the proposition. The red team's job is to pick it apart and find every hole. Okay. Um, it's a fascinating. It's a fun exp uh, exercise, bloody hard work. But the learning that comes out of it for those who are not involved, they suddenly start to realize all the moving parts. You know, the engineers, the management team, finance, product development, have all of those people involved in that. But as you said, it also expands the potential scope that you're offering in your solution yeah. to, the, to the client, to your counterpart. Because as you said, you've now worked out all of the ramifications. So you can come to them and say, look, these are more of the ramifications you may or may not be aware of. And they're like, oh, we were aware of those, but we weren't aware of those. That's a really good point. So you're, again, the natural authority because the other crowd aren't telling you this. They're giving you what you want. When, when does the negotiating actually start? <laughs> when <laughs> any sort of interaction you, you could argue is when the negotiation starts. I mean, on that, like, when does the negotiation stop is the other question, because... You know, some of the most valuable lessons, and it's said by, again, the best versus the rest, they call, what do they call the walk to the elevator conversations? When 
the stress of being out of that room and they're both in good form because you're building nice rapport. And then suddenly they drop some of these little clangor insights on the way to the elevator to say goodbye, to see you next week type of stuff. That's often where you get these amazing insights if you just listen. Well, what, one thing that I would strongly urge people to be very careful of, especially mm. if you're working with corporates, is when you get the deal, do not announce it. Oh, if yeah. You still have to go through the negotiation because what will happen is as soon as you've gone public, all of a sudden you have to get that deal in and they will squeeze you because they're waiting for you to go public on it. Yeah, because then again, they're using your potential fear of losing face against you. That and similar, depending on how many people have to deal with, you know, do a deal and then you're suddenly sent to procurement. Yeah. Or you have a closer negotiation. This happens when the clients have worked with these huge eight, nine figure deals, telecom stuff. And this happens not all the time, but enough to be really annoying, but not fully appreciated, so to speak where they literally have months and months or years even sometimes doing a deal, a great relationship with the other side over time. It's tough, like back and forth and lots of sparring and all the rest of it, a lot of mutual respect there. And then the last, the final bloody hurdle, oh, a closer, a third party negotiator closer comes in, nukes the whole bloody thing. Why? Because when we talked about this before, Marcus, be very careful about what you're incentivizing because that's what you're going to get more of. Yeah. And the negotiator course is all about what we call dealmaker mindset. They need to get it over the line. What are their KPIs? More margin, cut down on this, cut down the other. If they're the buyer, you know, all the more concession, another concession, another concession. And I don't want to pick a number, I wouldn't say half, but a huge amount of those deals within a year to 18 months have to be renegotiated because they're not fit for purpose. Because it was fit for purpose, then it got nuked by the guy who's incentivized incorrectly for the long term. So this is the difference between the dealmaker mindset, get it over the line, get it done, versus the implementer mindset where the deal is stage one of the whole relationship the of, of the this lifetime of this contract, which is looking at how is it going to actually work in 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 reality? You know, where are the likely friction points? When are we likely to get squeezed? Got to know that to have a bit of breathing room, a bit of slack in that system. And then getting in the people who are actually going to work together on either side. The so, amount of, well, we talked about this before, Marcus, the we'll, amount of people we'll that about don't. This, well, I, I really want to dig into this because it's really important. Sellers have a tendency. In fact, uh, Sandler did some research on it about five years ago. And what they found was <clears throat> companies of up to a, th uh, of a thousand or more employees, the average number of people that the seller spoke to was 1.65. Huh? The committee is made up of at least eight to 16 people nowadays. And for a big deal like you know, a seven, eight, nine uh, figure deal, you're talking about some really serious bunch of people. They will be influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, financial buyers, user buyers. There are people who are in favor of keeping the status quo. They have a vested interest in that, or they'll lose face if you change, or they'll have to, you know, all this uncertainty. All these other aspects that they don't ask, so they don't know. Yeah. And so, this is the point. You know, I found this in sort of more medium-sized enterprises where they're sizable and all. One of them is with the one of my clients many years ago. Is they were one of the main suppliers toward one of the the 
FMCG, you know, fast moving consumer goods. So basically yeah. supermarkets and things like that. Yeah. And it's the classic thing. There's always a bigger fish. You know, they're huge, but the other are even far greater again. And they had this kind of mutually assured destruction because they have to do a deal. But, you know, they, so the, it was an unusual situation. But long story short, I got them. I call it a horizontal support network. Going into different departments and saying, literally questioning them. And they'll be like, what? Shutting them up then is the problem. Because you ask them, what do we do in our department that ruins your day or your week without seemingly to realize it? And what do we do at other times that just makes things flow just beautifully? Yeah. And just shut up and just listen. <laughs> and even just that, it sounds daftly basic. But you get amazing insights up and downstream of, of the effects of your decisions. And then building that in where appropriate to the deal-making process for how do you deliver that thing? Or realizing that, oh, when we say, oh, we can deliver that in 24 hours, can they actually deliver it in eight and you have a ton of slack in that system? Or is it actually 22, 23 and you're right up against it and could be walking into a whole wall of penalties and a pissed off client, yeah. right? It's understanding your own side. We talked about this, knowing your margins and whatnot, but it's all that other factors that build into that. As he said, it takes time. People are busy. I know that. But when you when you get some of this, you put in the work, put in the time, just like the pre-mortem. The amount of money and value you can save relatively quickly is phenomenal. As a seller, if you focus on short-term pipeline, you are always, always having to start afresh every month. Big time. You focus on building your medium term pipeline. You mm. have the opportunity to spend time not selling, but delivering value consistently, reliably over time. And you can investigate what the effects are of the current setup, what those departments who are going to be the indirect beneficiaries or victims of what you sell are going to experience because that is what they're going to have to live with for years afterwards. And if you're selling something big ticket, chances are hundreds or thousands of people are going to be affected. Their livelihoods could be affected. We have a massive obligation as sellers not to sell the wrong thing exactly. and to make sure that the buyer is making the right decision. That is what selling is about. Selling is the facilitation of the best decision for the buyer, whether they eventually buy from us or not. And that detachment from the outcome is really important because it allows you to approach the negotiation objectively and stay detached because your objective is to focus on delivering excellence at every stage of the conversation, throughout the life cycle, throughout the buying cycle. So when you come to a negotiation, actually, there's not a whole heap to negotiate because you've negotiated along the way. Exactly. Every step of the way, you've got a little agreement, little agreement, little agreement. And you're pointing out something else that's important there, Marcus, which is that there's a, again, this right versus accurate spills into the idea of basically arrogance versus humility. And what you're talking about is having the humility to understand that you don't know everything and being like, that's okay. You're not meant to know everything, but you should bloody well find out as much as you can. And as we were talking about, if we're, don't assume you have the right solution until you know the needs of the other side of, of, the, of, of the potential buyer. To their so satisfaction. Exactly. The best fit, fit for purpose. Yeah. Solution. 
customized to their actual situation, not even what they're telling you, but the reality of their situation. So they're getting both what they want and what they need. And that's the point that they can feel that you're taking care of both, right? But you're able to read between the lines. So you're not just, oh, yeah, I can give you exactly what you're asking for. No problem. That's part of that uh, going and falling into that servitude trap because you're not respectfully pushing back on some of these elements. And this, again, is so important, understanding that as a seller, as a negotiator, you have rights and you must establish clear boundaries because if a buyer pushes against those boundaries, then you have the right to say, well, hang on a second, we've agreed that this is off limits. But if you haven't told them that that is off limits, then they will push and push and push. Exactly. And you can't blame your buyer. No, when they but particularly if they're trained negotiators, most of the, that class of negotiating training are they're trained to push you until you push back six times, eight times. They'll keep asking for the same thing in a different way. Same concession, same concession. And again, it's to know that some people, that's their approach. It might be tiresome. It might even be rude and insulting. It's not them. It's what they're trained to do. Just keep Keep standing your ground where you need to stand your ground, be flexible where you don't, right? And it's understanding that and playing that game. You've got three core principles. Mm. So it's not a photo, it's a sculpture. Think yeah. like a shrink. Yeah. And know is the beginning, not the end. And again, I, I love the second two. The first one might need a bit more explaining. Yeah. Not a thing. The amount of people that think of deals in a in a one or two dimensional way, that they see exactly what it is. And again, it's this assumption, falling into the assumptions trap rather than having the humility to to go, I don't know everything. But that opens up possibility. See things afresh. See your deals. Take in the idea, the perspective, that your your deal is more like a sculpture rather than a photograph. If photograph is a flat thing, whether it's on your phone or a screen or it's in a physical printout, you, you can move it around. You won't see any more of that image. Whereas a sculpture is an object that when you move around, new things come to light. Assume your deal is a sculpture. Move it around. What else might, what else might be possible? What else might be able to see? Now, don't get me wrong. You're not able to do that until you've built that rapport. Until you get, as you said, out of that lizard survival, oh God, I feel like prey. Thousands of good negotiators, very competent negotiators were interviewed. What was one of the things that kept coming up? The feeling that you might be prey, right? Now, how do you think you're going to be in the creative spirit if you feel like prey? You're not, right? So this is the point. So it's being able to ride that wave of nervousness, being able to pull and and this goes into the next point. So one is to see things as the possibility to ask the question, how might this be more than this just one or two dimensional thing? What else might be possible here? Number one. Number two, then think like a shrink. Could say think like a coach, whatever. Think like a shrink, it rhymes. Think like a shrink is what is a, a therapist like? They're fully present, but emotionally non-reactive. Not, not emotional. You can be emotional. You can be playful. You can be stern. You can be whatever way you choose to be, but you're not reacting by being by the manipulations of the other side. You're not in the trap of merely responding to the other side. You're choosing your response. But the key thing is you're fully present. What is then the fastest way to destroy rapport? Oh, sorry, I just have to do this thing. Or, you know, this thing where, uh-huh, 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 you know, all this sort of you have half of my attention stuff. 
burns through rapport. Be fully present, build on that. But then, as I said, emotionally prepared for the side swipes, for the jostling, for all of the other tricks and whatnot. Be prepared that they're trying to commoditize your offering. It's amazing, as you said, with all the winging, the amount of negotiators who aren't ready, they find it ins- slightly insulting. It's like, bugger but off. Then they do it this is like 101 yeah. stuff here, you know. But they don't fucking learn because they do it time and time again. And then they keep blaming the customer. It's exactly. you, you <laughs> asshole. Okay? It's you. Yeah. If, they if it don't happens understand three times that. in a row, it's you. If they don't understand your differentiated value, you haven't explained it well enough. Absolutely. If they don't understand through accurate story with detail and any stats that you might need. Oh, we worked with a customer just like yourself in this way. This was some of the deal parameters. This is what we did for them. Oh, well, okay. Right. You, you, they, you need to explain if they don't understand your differentiated value, because otherwise you are a commodity. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You need Absolutely. to decommodify yourself, right? But but again, people aren't prepared to do that. Do your pre-mortem, do your red team planning, and you'll have 10, 15 different ways that you can counter their commoditization attempts, right? So that's a big part of it. Being emotionally in your better self, you're neither aggressive nor defensive. You are fully present, but emotionally non-reactive. That's what builds trust so that they they can go, geez, I gave that guy a terrible time today. I was really in a bad mood and I ate the head off him. And he was still polite, still pleasant, still leaning in, still like really actually, I, I pushed him because I wasn't sure that he was genuine. But geez, he is genuine. Fair play, you know. This is the sort of thing that's going on in their head, either overtly or under the under the surface. That's how you build rapport. That's how you build trust. Because this is like a relationship where we go, oh, women are, they're testing men. Yeah, they're testing that you're not full of shit. They're testing that you're not a liar. They want to see that you are consistent. What you say is what you do. And that's what you're about. It's not just an act. It's the same thing in all relationships that you're starting off. Are you bullshit or are you actually what you say and make out? It comes back down to some fundamentals, which is be a decent human being. Yeah. With the intent of actually finding out, can I help? If I can't, get the hell out of Dodge and refer them to someone. Exactly. If you can, then you have to ask yourself the next question, which is a really hard one. Am I the best person placed to help them? Because if there is someone better, should I refer them? And often that will still get you the deal, even if you refer oh, it. I mean, the amount the amount of better deals I've got because I've said, you know what, I'm not sure I'm the right one for you because of this reason and this reason. And that often makes them want you more. They go, now I trust you even more. <laughs> now I know you're the right one for Oh God, okay, here we go. Why? Because you're willing to actually, in a fiduciary responsibility way, say, I'm I'm good. I can help you, but I think this person is better placed to help you with their expertise. Wow. That is literally you're putting their vulnerable. interest above your own. You're being vulnerable and mm. you're serving the customer, which then opens them up to get share intimacies and confidences with you. Absolutely. There is no downside because if they do decide to pick on your weakness, odds are you weren't going to make the sale anyway. No. You better find that stuff out early. You don't want to find out after nine months and 400 grand's worth of pursuit costs that you can't sell to them. Exactly. That's it's not a good culture fit. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, there you are. Well, that that's two of the principles. The third one is knows the beginning because people usually go and oh, how about this thing? And then the other side go, no, doesn't work for us. And they go, oh, okay, next. They go, hold on, Paul stole the ball there, as I say. Pause a moment. Don't get mad or sad. Get curious. Always lean in. Oh, no, that that's interesting. Would you mind just what is it about that specifically that doesn't quite work for you? Be curious. Ask questions because you're trying to get their story. How do they perceive what you've just said? I'd say, and this is just ballpark, 15, maybe 20% of the time, they've misunderstood what you're offering or what you're suggesting. And not only do you get to clarify the thing, but when they go, oh, no, no, we can totally do it that way. Oh, we didn't think, oh, okay. And suddenly the mist has lifted, there's clarity, and you actually got the thing that you wanted. Now, that's in the minority. But at the very least... At the very least, you're actually learning more about the story in their heads as to what their problem is and how they see your solution. And that is gold so that your later suggestions can fit far, far better with their perceived needs and their perceived pain points and problems. And that's the key point here. Buyers buy emotionally through their perception. They're not necessarily buying the facts in front of them. It's an emotional process. And We have a tendency, especially with those larger ticket sales, to forget the emotion and to focus on the finance, on technology, on the return on investment. And that is all very important. It is, of course, but but you're quite correct. I mean, look, I I know from a lot of sort of mergers and acquisitions uh, of, you know, founder-led businesses, a lot of the, the acquisitions you can get in earlier or get in later than some of the potential bidders because you understand the founder. You know, they founded the thing. It's their baby. They're selling it now. They want an early retirement or whatever. New challenge, you name it. It's not the money. Yes, they want to be compensated. It's the understanding that you get what that company means. You get their key concerns. And there's been deals done for significantly less than other offers on the table that they'll say later, look, I didn't go with them because it just didn't feel right. I didn't think they got me. You bothered to actually have that conversation. You bothered to to work out that I actually have lifelong relationships with those six people that work in the company out of, you know, the 80 that work in the company or whatever. And I want them deeply taken care of. That there's aspects of the culture that we built here that I'm deeply proud of, that I want some guarantees that aren't going to be trashed and thrown out, that you're going to take care of my people. This is the intangibles, Marcus, you got to add, you know. I was chatting to a prospect earlier today, and he used to have a marketing agency. What's really interesting was um, he used to speak to the customers regularly. He would do the research. He was constantly updating the product. Sold, private equity took over. They've stopped doing that for 18 months, and they cannot sell a thing. Yeah, of course not, because people buy more than the thing. They buy the whole experience of the thing. No one buys a website. No one buys recruitment. No one buys training. They pay for the outcome. This is is the Derek uh, Silver story where it's, you know, early internet millionaire fellow going down a talk in Vegas and he's in the cab on the way in from the airport. Oh, you're from Vegas, he says to the cabbie. Oh, yeah, Vegas born and bred, you know, one of the few. Oh, yeah. Says, yeah, you must have seen some changes. Oh man, yeah. And there's this little pause. And then he goes, 
I miss the mob. <laughs> and he says, sorry, you yeah. miss the organized crime. And he goes, look, yeah, it could get messy at times, you know, but generally everybody just made money. Everybody was more fun. So then you have all these fucking Ivy League NBA weenies coming in and suddenly, you know, just like in that movie Casino, he says, suddenly you're being charged 10, 10 cent for a little mustard sachet for your hot dog and you're being five cent for this and this and what the hell? He says, all the joy, all they 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 diluted the reason why we love this place. And is saying this was a point that he made. It's like, why do people love buying your stuff? Yeah. It's not because of the price. It's not because it's because of the experience, because there's something there. And what happens when people are over efficiency, efficient size is the word, make overly efficient some a process, they often take away some of that extra element as to why the customers love the experience. Yeah. They 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 depersonalize and they, they depersonalize. Beautifully um, Al, we've come to time, Sandy, because I can tell Tell us the name of the book again, and uh, can you provide a, a chapter for people to download? Certainly, certainly. Well, first of all, the, the name of the book is Dealing with Goliath, The Psychological Edge in Negotiation. My name is Alistair McBride, the long version of Al, A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R-M-C-B-R-I-D-E. But you can actually get a free copy of the book in PDF form. Right. You can dip into it if you enjoy. So a lot of people hate reading PDFs. I can understand. So you can buy it on Amazon like, shortly. And you can get that at almcbride, A-L-M-C-B-R-I-D-E dot com slash book. And there's also going to be some other little launch goodies, other little extras uh, involved in that. Excellent. And how can people get hold of you? They can just very simply on LinkedIn, just uh, one of the few Alistair McBrides. I just felt the name there. Or also just through my website, just uh, send me an email at al, A-L, at almcbride.com. Simple as that. Excellent. Okay, you've got a golden ticket. You can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Al, age 23. Mm. What one bit of advice would you give him that he'd have undoubtedly ignored but should have benefited from? That's an interesting one. And here now I'm like, this was the question I meant to prepare for, but I forgot <laughs> to tell you before. So following well, follow your own advice. That's, 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 there you go. that's a very, very good uh, tip. <laughs> Follow your own advice. Like You have most of the answers. Yes. You don't need to continue to go into other. Yes, you can always learn more, but follow your own advice in the first bloody place. That's what I'd say to myself. And what would you recommend people consume by way of content? So books, audios, podcasts? Yeah, a few great books around negotiation that are great reads, but the lessons in them are outstanding. Uh, one is Getting More by Stuart Diamond. Uh, some great dynamic thinking there. And again, it's 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 opening your mind, just like I was talking about, not, not a photo, a sculpture. That's all about that. It's how to see potential situations. Uh, in a rougher way, an older school version of that, not version of that, but it's an older school, similar principles. Herb Cohen's very famous Negotiate Anything. And lastly is very... The classic Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, which is a huge bestseller the last few years. But again, Rollick and Reed, that's the FBI negotiator now works at Harvard and all sorts of places. The, the other one I would recommend is Jim Camp starting with no. Yeah, starting with no. That's a good one. It's, it's around yeah. there somewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I have a very dog-eared copy. 
Start with no is one of the ones actually recommended by Chris Voss, and it's excellent because it's just a pushback. Let them say no, that doesn't suit us. That's not possible. The only people that don't even ask again is falling into that assumptions trap. God Almighty! So it, that's where it's as a starting point is where it starts. I'm hugely valuable. Excellent, Al McBride. Thank you, Marcus. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And also click the bell on my profile. If you would like to get in touch with me about coaching and you've got a really difficult call or meeting that you've got coming up, I've got a 15-minute coaching package. And in 15 minutes, you will end up with the one question that will unlock that problem. So if you're interested in that, then please DM me on LinkedIn or Marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.